Hey, it's Scott Jennings, host of Flyover Country. I have a great conversation this week, a really good friend of mine from CNN. You see us on together quite often. Her name is Ashley Allison. She is a Democrat political strategist. She is a veteran of the Obama-Biden administration. She was a senior staffer on the Biden-Harris campaign in 2020. She is from Ohio. And I listen very carefully to what Ashley says about American politics and what's going on in the Democratic Party. So if you're interested in a Democrat strategist eyes view of what's going on with Joe Biden right now in this presidential campaign, this conversation is to you. Ashley has a long history in politics. She worked way back for Barack Obama, and she has a lot of very fascinating perspective on what's going on with President Biden with young voters, with African-American voters, and gave him a lot of advice in this conversation today about what he should do with his TV ads and in the upcoming State of the Union. A conversation with CNN political contributor Ashley Allison today on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. Analysis now with our political commentators. Ashley Allison is a former White House senior policy advisor, and Scott Jennings is the former special assistant to President George W. Bush. Thank you both for being with us this afternoon. And here with their reaction to that interview, former Obama White House senior advisor, policy advisor Ashley Allison. Now joining us, CNN political commentators Scott Jennings and Ashley Allison. Let's talk about the politics of all of this. Joining me now is Republican strategist Scott Jennings. Let's discuss all of this with Ashley Allison, former National Coalition's director for the Biden-Harris campaign, along with Scott Jennings, former special assistant to President George W. Bush. Thanks to both of you uh, for being here. Let's bring in CNN political commentators Alyssa Farrah Griffin, Scott Jennings, and Ashley uh, Allison. Political commentator Ashley Allison, who served as the National Coalition's director for the Biden-Harris 2020 presidential campaign. And as you can hear, Ashley Allison and I have been on television a number of times together. And this morning, we're not in front of our cameras. We're just in front of our microphones. Ashley, welcome to Flyover Country. Good to be here. Hi, I'm Scott. Glad, I'm so glad to hear your voice. I'm always glad to hear your voice. I've grown uh, very fond of you over the years and all of our work together, even though, even though I do notice when we're finished with our segments, I go back and I look at the tape. And you do, you have been giving me some looks lately. I'm just going to point out, you've been giving me a few, like people are screen capping it and sending me saying, what's actually looking at you that way for? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm always smiling at her. She... <laughs> so it, anyway. It is called a side eye. <laughs> yeah. Oh, people have noticed. Believe me. The social media noticed. Um, so I'm, I'm so glad you're here because, uh, first of all, I uh, respect your experience greatly. I think. Uh, what you say on television is extremely insightful, and we're at the point of the presidential campaign where uh, obviously Donald Trump's going to be the Republican nominee. I think all this replacing Joe Biden is a total fantasy. People just idle chit-chat out there. I think the race is on, and so I want to start with the obvious question. You uh, are a committed Democrat, and you're a successful political operative. You helped elect Joe Biden. You helped elect Barack mm -hmm. Obama before him. You know what a winning Democratic campaign looks like. So I'm going to ask the smartest Democrat political operative I know. <laughs> is Joe Biden winning right now? And if not, does he have a plan to get back on track? 
Okay, so I if you're if you said if the election were today, would Joe Biden win? I think so. If it was Donald Trump, I think so. But here's the thing about campaigns and on the Democratic side is that our voters really do like to be in conversation with their candidates. And so I've said this on television before, and I firmly believe it. The Biden campaign, if they want to be successful in the fall, have to go and talk to voters. They cannot stay in a bubble in Washington, D.C. They have to go either with door knocking, with events. Um, They need their surrogates out there talking to folks and really explaining what this administration, why Joe Biden deserves another four years. And I think when they have the conversations with those voters, particularly in the contrast to Donald Trump, that he can win. Yeah. Let me ask you a question about money. This was, uh, by the way, we're recording this on Wednesday morning, February the 21st. Last night and yesterday, the campaign finance reports were coming out. There were all these reports about all the money that Joe Biden is raising. I was assured by some of our colleagues on CNN that this is all that matters. The polls don't matter. Nothing matters except the fact that Joe Biden has all this money. I have been saying for some time, I'm not sure any amount of money for Trump or Biden can change much of what or maybe even all of what we already think about them as Americans. How big a deal was that campaign finance report to you? Do they need all that money to turn this thing around? Do you think that television ads are going to be a thing in this election? I, I'm, I'm dubious, but I'm interested in your thoughts. Well, I don't know if television ads are going to be a deciding factor in this election because the way people just generally get their news is not with scheduled television anymore. Like, I haven't seen a commercial. My mom is staying with me right now, and I haven't seen a commercial. She keeps saying, have you seen this commercial? Have you seen this commercial? And I'm like, <laughs> no, mom, I don't I don't watch commercials. That's not how I get my television anymore. So, again, that, that would be how I receive political ads. But I, what I will say is that... Um, Having money, particularly with other donors, it gives a sense of confidence that anything is possible. So, so the fact that the Biden campaign has a significant amount of money is reassuring, particularly so early in the race, is that people are here, people are with this campaign, and people want it to win. On the contrary, though, you hear number um, stories about the RNC being broke, Right. And I think that there's a little bit of a difference in terms of the DNC having money and the RNC not having money, because I do think on the Republican side, there is a strong infrastructure that doesn't really require television ads. They have a media infrastructure. They have a way of communicating with their voters that is quite sophisticated and has been over the last eight years that doesn't really require major TV ads. Now, I'll also say this caveat because, Scott, you and I, our jobs are to talk about politics every day. There is a significant amount of people in this country who don't even realize there's a presidential election this year. And these are not people who, these are people who have nine to fives, who are college educated, who are, it runs the spectrum of the demographic of this person. And so a TV ad could start to introduce a conversation about a, um, presidential ad to a voter who was like, oh, yeah, that's right. That thing is happening this year. And those are the voters that I think are going to be so important in this election cycle. But you're right. For someone like me or like um, you who kind of already have a perspective on these two folks, a television ad, 90 seconds, 60 seconds, is not going to change. You, you raised the, the prospect of TV ads maybe not being 
uh, redefining for who we think these candidates are, but you said may start a conversation about an issue. I assume uh, you have some issues in mind. If you were in charge of the ad strategy for uh, Joe Biden's campaign, what are the issues you'd be focusing on? What conversations would you be trying to start right now with those ads? Well, there's two that I, I would approach in some um, in a similar way. And then there's one that I think needs a more curated message. So I would definitely talk about abortion and a woman's right to choose. That is a very popular issue on the Democratic side. And to date, we have actually seen it's a popular issue for some Republican folks who might cross over lines. Um, I would, th well, actually I have three. So abortion, I would talk about this uh, ability to secure our democracy, because I do think that that is on the heels of January 6th and all the things that Donald Trump is saying about being a dictator. I do think talking about having someone who is our commander in chief, who believes in our constitution, constitution, who believes in our institutions and wants to see a thriving democracy and America being the gold star standard for what a democracy should be is the person that should be president. And then I would talk about economics and I wouldn't talk it just to talk about it just in terms of inflation, but the investments that this campaign or this administration has done, whether it's the money that cities are going to start to see through the IRA, whether it is um, uh, student loan cancellation, whether it is uh, their approach on care or all the various things that help people and middle class and, and poor people economically, I think that that would be um, three issues that I would talk about. So abortion, the economy, uh, practical econ economics, and our democracy. On the other side, there are two issues that are not the same, but are often paired together, I think, by my opponents. And I think we have to have a conversation about immigration and crime in our country. I think there are some there's this feeling that people in cities, particularly people of color, don't care about feeling safe. Like we all want to feel safe in our communities. We all want to be able to, you know, walk down the street and not be worrying about um, being carjacked or, or robbed or whatever. So those two have to be conversations that, that our Democrats, I would say, learn how to have. And I think if they do, then they could also be very beneficial as well. You uh, raised the immigration issue. I was uh, tracking the other night uh, for CNN and was on the air uh, when the special election in New York happened to replace George Santos. And I was noting that the Democrat who won the race, Swazi, if you didn't know anything about this campaign and you didn't know which party the candidates were in and you just watched his ads, you might have assumed he was the Republican. I mean, he was the ad that he showed most was an ad of him appearing on Fox News talking about how Congress needs to support ICE. And so we, we get on the air, and our our colleague Van Jones was applauding this and was saying, look how look how uh, uh, you know versatile and uh, you know elastic the Democratic <laughs> coalition can mm -hmm. be. And I thought, what what is happening right now? I've got Van Jones sitting here next to me arguing that Democrats need to run as immigration hardliners in order to win campaigns. Of course, Biden has tried to change his position on immigration lately and do a little jujitsu with the Republicans on that. Do you sense in the Democratic Party that there is a, a tactical move to effectively sound conservative on immigration or is this just kind of an in the moment thing? Well, I think it's a little more complex than that. I, one, Democrats right now are offering a solution to House 
um, Republicans. And it is literally the most conservative bill that we have seen from the Democratic side. It is not the thing that the most progressive wing of the Democratic Party would likely want to pass. And Republicans are literally just blocking it and saying they don't want a solution. So I think when we talk about how Democrats can talk about immigration, I think they, the first way is that we actually want to fix the problem versus my their colleagues who seem to like to exist in this ongoing nonsense of just like not having an answer to the problem. So that's the first way I would suggest to the campaign to talk about it. I think in terms of Swazi, um, I took his approach. I appreciate you saying he could sound like a, a Republican. I took his approach <laughs> to having this conversation um, as being like, I can, I can work across the aisle. I can, I can work with Republicans. I can go on Fox News and have a conversation. I'm not just here to argue. I'm not just here to lie to my constituents, like the person he's replacing, George Santos. But I'm here for a real solution. And then the final thing I would say is that just because there are Democratic candidates, the overwhelming majority of Democratic candidates support some type of um, border patrol. They support wanting to make sure that we have a system for immigration. Similar to the issue around policing, they want police officers on the streets doing the right thing, meaning keeping our community safe. And that could look a, very, a lot of different ways, not having to be the person to solve all the problems around mental health issues and um, people who don't have homes. And so there's a way to talk about it that isn't Democratic or Republican. It's just about keeping our community safe. And so I think that that's the approach that Democrats will take. I'm not going to um, give Republicans the right to say that they're the ones that want to have because because we talk about immigration reform, I don't think that means that you sound like a Republican when you talk about it. Or because you talk about keeping communities safe, I don't think that that automatically becomes a Republican talking point. What you mean behind it, obviously, you know, now we need that. The, the devil is in the details. But mm. um, I also will say, we'll in close with this, I'm not sure, uh, and I, I, I have felt like this for some time, we are in a presidential race and um, you'll probably agree with this, that usually in a presidential, everything is nationalized. And I think that this election is going to require some more customization. I think we mm -hmm. saw that in 2020 and 2023. Your home state, um, Governor Bashir, ran a yep. very uh, particular campaign in 2023, as opposed to the Democrats in Virginia, perhaps. Um, when they were trying to look for to win the majority in their uh, state house and state senate. So I think that some of the conversations are going to be customized to the communities, particularly in these congressional races, and then bubble up to a national narrative around Joe Biden. That, I think, is the winning key in 2024. You've uh, laid out where you think some of the opportunities, offensive opportunities are from a policy perspective for Democrats. When you think about Joe Biden's vulnerabilities, as a political operative, do you think they they lie more in the policy realm? Do you think it's more Republicans being able to make a case on the economy or on immigration or crime? Or do you think his issues are largely confined to just the age question about whether he's up to another term? What, what's what's a bigger think, vulnerability for the president's reelection campaign? I think that it is a mixture of different things. Look, we're on the other side of COVID. I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday 
And I was like, wow, your life is still different. My life is still different because of COVID. It's not, we're not wearing masks. We're not, um, vaccines aren't on every corner. But I mean, how we interact, how how we work, how much we go out and socialize with people, all these things are still different from COVID. And because of that, I think that creates a unique challenge for any person to then try and communicate a message of, of normalcy, because we still are in somewhat of an unnormal approach to life just because of the trauma COVID uh, put in people's mm. lives of just having to stay at home and losing people and whatnot. So I think that's the first thing. And I, and I, I know COVID was an awful time and people want to forget it, but it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> you know, I mean, we just really opened back up a year and a half ago. There's still some remnants of the impact of that. The second thing oh. is, I think, what'd you say? Oh, I, I, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll just respond. I, I mean, I was driving I in here this morning. <laughs> well, I was driving in here this morning. I mean, I saw a dude in a car wearing by himself, driving a car, wearing a mask in a car alone. Mm. And, and it was a reminder yeah. to me. That some people haven't, I mean, it, it, it broke some people. Like, I mean, yes. it, 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 I mean, it definitely, I mean, there's no reason for you, by the way, to be in a car wearing a mask alone. I don't think. <laughs> and so I, I mean, it, 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 there are people out there who, who for that experience was like, they may never come back from it. I don't know. It, right. It's a strange yes. thing. Yes. And, and some of it is visible like that. And some of it is invisible and we aren't seeing it. And so I still think that there is a, aftermath that we're experiencing that ultimately is on the way to the, the president to figure out um, or people feel like it's on the president to figure out but I think it should be a communal approach the second thing I will say is now more than ever the way people are consuming their media this is kind of goes to the earlier question you had about television ads it is mm. just different like whatever your stance is on TikTok but TikTok Instagram streaming it just is not the same and so the way that gone are really the days where the president goes out and walks out and stand or sits behind um, the resolute desk or behind a podium and all of America is watching because you don't have a choice because every station is streaming it. Well, not anymore because like I don't watch live television really. I always go back and watch the recording. So that's another challenge. And then I just think that the the narrative that people want folks to embody is what people often embody. So there is definitely a question about Joe Biden's age. It is not going away. It's going to be the topic of conversation. And it just, every day he gets a little bit older. And so it just becomes something that is easy to continue to talk about. So um, I think the only antidote to that is that he has to get out there, continue to communicate with people, continue to show folks that he is up to the job, um, and then let the voters ultimately decide. The other night when the her report was released and then a couple of hours later Joe Biden had a a press conference in the White House did you think that was a smart move to go out there that night did and in, in, in the aftermath of it uh, do you think the White House is happy with how that turned out well I think I was probably one of the few people on television that night that said well he had to do something mm. um I think that he needed to say something to the American audience. And I appreciated his pushback. I appreciated his anger about, you know, if you ever lost somebody close to you, you know, grief shows up in a lot of different ways. You know that you never forget the day that you lose them. 
but you also know that there's fogginess and that sometimes you just serve it, it just grief just manifests in so many different ways for people so I think that it was good that he went and spoke to the American people I don't think that is the approach all the time that needs to happen like this fiery don't don't dare question me that but that I appreciate a little bit of pushback of like come on people this was my son this is one of the most important people in my life I've experienced so much loss in my life of course I remember when um he he died so I appreciate the pushback I don't know if the White House um felt like it was a good idea or not I mean they let it happen so but I also feel like this again is what happened that day for me, I'll just like, I, I like to not engage with folks who just live in DC because I think we all live in a bubble. I'm one of those people. I like to engage with people outside of the Beltway, like yourself, Scott. Um, and when the report came out, everybody was like, ooh, like, oh my goodness, that's terrible, you know, in our group chat. And then like later that night when people started seeing the clips of him pushing back, they were like, okay, Uncle Joe, like, I see you, <laughs> you know? So it kind of had a neutralizing factor again for folks who don't live and die off of, DC reporting, um, and now to turn the page on to the next. Voice you're hearing this morning on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is Ashley Allison, who you see on CNN. She's one of our all-star Democratic political contributors and is a veteran of Joe Biden's campaign, Barack Obama's campaign, and of the White House, one of the most successful Democratic political operatives working today. And I want to talk about one of your campaigns, Ashley, uh, because you and I sort of ran into each other professionally back in 2012 in Ohio, your home state. You were working for President Obama. I was working for mm -hmm. Mitt Romney. We didn't know each other, but you got the best of me in that election. Okay. Uh, and I was I like, think, wait, Scott, we met? <laughs> no, oh, I would have remembered it, believe me. I, I, uh, uh, I think Obama won Ohio and I tell people this sometimes, you know, that experience for me was interesting. I, I mean, we executed everything we were asked to do, more voter contacts than anyone could have ever imagined, hitting our marks on, you know, turnout in certain places. But we were bested by Obama, who I think won the state on the strength of African-American turnout, which you were in charge of. And I bring this up because uh, today you hear in the chit chat that Biden is soft with African-American voters, that Trump may be slicing into some African-American cohorts like with African-American men. I'm wondering, because this is your specialty, what do you see in African-American communities today that could be or would be leading them away from Democrats, possibly to either sit out the election or even in the case of these African-American men to pull the lever for Donald Trump? People say this a lot about the African-American community as a talking point, and they say Black people are not a monolith, and then yet there's an expectation for them to vote as a monolith or to receive their information or desire the same information. And I fundamentally believe now more than ever, my theory on 2024 is that the African-American community is more diverse in so many different ways than it has ever been. And I'm not sure the political landscape has caught up to the diversity of the community. Perhaps the own our, my own community might not even realize how uh, dispersed we are. So 
a couple of things. I think people not engaging in this election is different than going to Trump. People who are not engaging in this election feel like the system is failing them and that no matter what they do, it doesn't matter because their vote feels meaningless because it's so big and that nothing can improve the quality of their life. That is a, there is a, a way to talk to those voters and say, that is not accurate and this is what I will do for you or this is what I've already done for you. Um, and so really persuading them to not give up on the system. I always say that um, democracy is like being in a, you, will, you, you should strive for it to be like being in a healthy, ongoing, committed relationship. If you are in a committed relationship, you cannot, you have to have constant communication. You have to have constant interaction. When somebody does something that you don't like, you have to hold them accountable. You have to grow together. You cannot stay the same. You know, excuse your listeners. I hope everyone's over over 18. But I'm like, if you have a one night stand, it's not like fruitful for your life. It, it can <laughs> cause all the negative things that one night stands can cause. And so that's kind of what happens if you only show up and vote one time, like your life is not going to improve. It's going to go about its business doing whatever it wants to do, not considering you. So you want to be in a constant committed relationship with democracy. So those are those voters who are like, ah, the system is broken. It's not going to work for me. People who are, um, and I don't, I'm not going to pretend like on this podcast, I have the exact answer. People who are leaving the democratic party, and I'm not going to say just going to vote for Republican, but going to vote for Trump. I don't think that there has been enough, um, particularly voters of color and Black men, I don't think there's enough awareness on why they're doing that. I think the easy answer for folks to say is that it's because Trump is really strong on economics and whatnot. But, well, is he? Because we just saw he had, like, committed fraud and is now having to pay $355 million to the state of New York. So I think the easy answer is to say, oh, because Trump is so strong on economics. But I think there's something deeper happening with those voters that needs to be explored more um, about what they are really looking for. And I'm not sure it's the actual policy thing that they're looking for. Um, I think it's something it? a little deep. I don't know. Is it, is it, is it an I mean, is it, is it an attitude? Is it a vibe? Is it a, I mean, what is it? I mean, I, I think it might have something to do with like a masculine presentation of strongness of, I'm just going to break all the rules. Like I'm, I'm, I'm like the king in this castle and I'm going to do what I want in my, in my, um, in my castle. And there is something, you know, I think Democrats sometimes get frustrated because like Trump didn't care about the rules and did whatever. And he still, he didn't win in 2020, but he's still most likely at the top of the ticket. Whereas like Democrats sometimes don't aren't as zealous and don't you know just go for the the gusto even though it's funny like i hear like you when you talk to me and you're like oh my goodness you democrats are just like charging ahead and i'm like are we like it feels <laughs> like we're so you know the grass is always greener when you're looking at folks in terms of strategy or parties in terms of strategies but i think it again i'm not exactly sure and i'm trying to do some work in the next couple of months to put my finger on it a little bit more about why a voter of color is not just leaving the Democratic Party, but might potentially go and vote for Donald Trump. Because I think voting Republican is different than voting Donald Trump. Mm. Let me um, stick with Ohio for a second. You grew up in the Youngstown area, I think, up in Northeast yes. Ohio. Yep. And one of the reasons that I, I think you are an effective commentator for 
CNN and for what we do on these panels is that you carry that middle America ear. You know, you always, in my opinion, seem to know how things are going to hit the ear of the average voter out in the middle of the country a little bit better, I think, than the Beltway crowd we sometimes talk to. I'm interested. I think our listeners are interested. Tell me about your upbringing in Ohio, your family, and how you got into politics in the first place. Yeah, so um, both my mom and my father's side of the family, their parents set up roots in Youngstown, Ohio. So both sides of my family live there. And we've now, in like my generation, a lot of us have left the the city, but um, we grew up around family. Um, we grew up, you know, going to uh, Catholic school, but also going to the Boys and Girls Club after school. So feeling like we got to see a diversity of experiences, even in our childhood, which allowed us to ask some questions like, huh, like why at our school are the lunches like this? And when we go to the Boys and Girls Club, the lunches are like this. Um, and they were different. Like our school, they were homemade by people in the kitchen, cutting up the ingredients. And when we go to Boys and Girls Club, because it was part of a program that USDA allowed for free school lunch, they would be healthy, but they wouldn't be as like appetizing, right? They would be in these little foil boxes, you know, those lunches yeah. with the paper lid and that. But that for some folks might've been the only thing that they got to eat today. And so from a young age, I just, you know, got to see those things. I always um, was someone who, when I saw something that didn't feel right, I didn't really know if it was like a Democratic thing or a Republican thing, but I always would be like, ask the question and try and get a better understanding. And then just growing up, played sports, just like football was a big thing. Every Friday night, we would go watch the football games, um, you know, uh, spending time with family and birthdays and holidays, just really a middle American lifestyle. And I eventually went to Ohio State where I've been involved in like student government in high school, but Ohio State was when I really cut my teeth in politics and started organizing around various issues. And that was the 2000 election, Bush v. Gore. And that was the first mm. time I voted and helped register voters on my campus. And obviously that being my first election, it was like, I remember everybody in my dorm was asleep and I was the one staying up till 4 a.m. trying to figure out what was going to happen in Cuyahoga County in Ohio um, and what was going to happen in Florida. And it felt very reminiscent to like staying up till 4 a.m. during 2016. Like what is happening here? Um, So it just, you know, that's kind of how I got into politics. But what I will say is I didn't really know you could make a career out of politics. So after college, I went and I became a teacher in Brooklyn, New York, I moved to the city. And that was when Obama's presidential rise really came up. And I was like, oh, wait, there are people who are like working on this campaign. I volunteered in 08, but then became full-time staff in 12. And it was kind of, I never looked back. Once I started working in politics, some people really like the politics of it. I like the interacting with people, organizing, like listening to people and trying to find a solution of the political side of work. Um, and I, you know, I felt for the first time I had found my purpose and I really never looked back after that. That voice you're hearing today is Ashley Allison, who is a CNN political contributor, longtime Democrat political operative, and my good friend. When we come back, more with Ashley Allison on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. 
Hey there, Flyover Country listeners. Today's episode is brought to you by the Bluegrass Media Lab, Kentucky's premier media studio. The Bluegrass Media Lab offers a wide array of services, including video production, podcasting, live shot broadcasting, web development, media training, and more. You name it, they do it. Head over to bluegrassmedialab.com today to get in touch. Now, back to more Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. And welcome back to Flyover Country. I'm Scott Jennings. Our guest this week, Ashley Allison, my colleague from CNN. Ashley, I want to ask you uh, about something that's happening in the next few weeks. That's the State of the Union. The president will speak to Congress in early March. What advice do you have for the White House on what Joe Biden should be doing and communicating in this speech? So when I worked on State of the Unions under President Obama, <laughs> one thing, and Scott, you probably know this from when you yeah. worked in the Bush uh, White House, it can become a laundry list of oh, yeah. projects for every community and constituency. It's like the one time people lobby like all year, just one line about bicycles or one line about stars, you know, and you're like, how are we going to fit this in? So a couple recommendations is I think that one, Joe Biden should come as his full self. Last year, he was able to like do some zingers for, to the audience and whatnot, like allow that side to show up, but then like go back to nailing down on your points that you really need to make. I think probably I would approach the speech in three big buckets. Maybe the issues that I just mentioned, like maybe a, more of a conversation about freedom, more of a conversation about the economy and more about like the safe communities we want to all live in. Mm -hmm. um, I think who, you know, the state of the union, there's always people um, who are in the, the first lady's boxes and those individuals tell a story. Um, look, there is a conflict going on right now in the Middle East that nobody wants to spread. It is dividing part of the democratic coalition in terms of the war with Israel and Hamas. And I think potentially having folks from from folks who have lost people in Gaza, but also a hostage's family there um, to, to talk about the complexity of the issue and not just say I'm siding with one, you know, well, we obviously want terrorism gone. So like we're siding with the anti-terrorism side, but um, having being able to talk about what his administration is doing on this issue um families from ukraine there's so much going on internationally here but then right. like find the people in the country who have find the person that you canceled their student loan debt and now can go buy a house or you know can sh shift it the way they approach the world find the person who's going to get that um infrastructure deal you know there's been so many tragic um shootings and that have happened mass shootings like so there's there's a way to tell the story that you're doing through people because oftentimes people are like, oh, there's these policies that haven't impacted. Put a face to the policies that you're talking about. Um, and then the most important thing, because as I have said over and over in this interview, the State of the Union probably is the one time when like all the channels go to the president, but right. most people still won't be watching. So um, find a way the next day, this is when you blitz. You need to have every surrogate in every market talking about that speech, talking about what the president does. It's really the walkout after the speech for the next couple of days that will be really important. And the final thing I would say is 
it's a it's a official speech and so not on the political side but the state of the union is happening march 7th which is a thursday you know what happens two days before is super tuesday and so we will know without a shadow of a doubt who the republican nominee is going to be because the vote as many voters that will probably have voted nikki haley if she's still in the race will have dropped out and so there's an opportunity to make a contrast to the donald trump four years of, of being president to the pre- the four years and the future four years that um uh joe biden is seeking to to hold you you raised uh an issue that we haven't touched on but i think is really important to understanding this campaign and democratic party coalition politics right now and that's the war uh with israel and hamas i, I mean you and i've talked about this on and off the air i have been taken aback frankly at the uh, level of anti jewish sentiment anti-israel vitriol that has come out of the progressive left. And obviously, this is having some impact on Joe Biden's thinking. Uh, It's having an impact on their thinking about what's going on in Michigan with the uh, Arab American community up there. Would you give me your perspective on this? I mean, you and I obviously approach it from different points of view. I mean, my 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 gut level instinct is, is that there's a lot more anti-Semitism in this country uh, and has been, been right below the surface than a lot of people want to admit, and it's and it's breaking through right now. Um, how long is it going to take us to put this back in the bottle? Because I, I think it's been pretty ugly, frankly. Well, I think there's two questions in there. One, I agree. I think that there is a lot of anti-Semitism in this country. I think there's a lot of anti-Blackness, anti-women. I think they're in it all just under the surface. And I think it is starting, depending on what situation happens in our country, the powder cake explodes and then we see what is there. And so I don't, you know, I have lived my life and the work that I do. I don't think that there is a place for hate or anti-Semitism anywhere. That is one statement that is true. And I apply it to all of my policies. I think though on the war, there are people, and I fall in this category where I believe Israel has a right to defend itself. And I believe that Israel has a right to exist. I don't want to see innocent people dying on either side whether that was on October 7th I want all the hostages returned but it is also extremely hard for me to watch what is happening in Gaza hearing reports from I was in the CNN newsroom and there was a doctor who um, had just come back from Gaza and talked about what he had seen and how people were living in the the humanitarian crisis I mean Cindy McCain has said that they're on the verge of a famine Um, and and so I think that you can believe that. And so I have called for ceasefire back in November because I also believe I'm not sure war is the way that you ever solve anything. Um, I remember after 9-11 being frustrated and knowing that our country had to do something to protect ourselves. But I also lost friends in that war um, after 9-11. And I could look back at that at Afghanistan and I'm like, and is it any better off than it was 20 years ago? And I think that's a big question. So I just am trying to apply a complex analysis. And I think both things can be true where Israel has a right to defend itself and um, exist. And what is happening in Gaza feels like an extreme that is not actually going to solve the problem and the ending of Hamas. Um, and so I, I, I am pleading with our leaders to take a more nuanced approach. And it feels like the Biden administration is trying to do that. But again, it doesn't also feel like 
the Israel government, particularly led by Netanyahu, is interested in hearing the complexities of it. Also, it's think- like when I was, I also don't think that this is the thing that is going to get the hostages back either. Um, and if that's the key priority, then like we've the only time we've actually got hostages back, well, except for most recently the two older men was when there was a temporary ceasefire. So I just feel like what is the actual end goal? And so how, and, and, and I, the outcome is, is just as important as the means to get to it. Do you think younger progressive voters believe that Joe Biden is doing a good job on this right now? And, and what is it you think they want him to do? I mean, I have my theories, but I want to, I want to hear what you think about it. Um, I think it's split. I think that there is a significant population of young progressives who are very upset and disappointed in the president's approach. I think there are some young voters that are not really paying that much attention to it and are more focused on whether how they're going to pay for college or how they're, if they're not going to go to college and so how they're going to make a steady living. And so, and then I think there are some who are concerned, but this might not be the determining factor for them in the election cycle. So I think there's a bucket of folks. I think folks would like for him to call for um, a ceasefire. These are the things that I have seen folks request. So I'll just like regurgitate mm-hmm. what I've seen. Some folks, including myself, have said like, I think it's now time for the United States to say we should pause this fighting and figure out a different path to get the hostages back to ensure Hamas is gone, but also ensure nothing like October 2nd happens again. And folks feel like the best way to do that is through a ceasefire. Um, there are people who don't want any more um, arms to or weapons or money to be given to Israel until there is some tracking on how they're actually going to use it because what's happening in Gaza feels like it's too extreme for some folks. And then there are people who don't want the president to support Israel at all. And I think... Um, in a democracy, everyone is allowed to feel a certain way, but it is our, we elect leaders with certain positions. That is not Joe Biden's position. He is a supporter of Israel. He believes that Israel is our strongest ally. I think there is frustration from the Biden administration of what is happening right now um, in the war and the outcome. And the most important thing is like, we don't, Americans do not want to go to war right now. Um, I agree with that. I I think that's, I think that is a unifying strain through both parties is this sense that, 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 you know, I, I don't know if you want to call it isolationism. That's what I call it. But I, I actually think it's running through both parties fairly, fairly significantly right now. I agree with you. I do not. I, I cannot support a war right now. Um, and how do we avoid that? And so the thing about it is like everyone, what what is also exposed, and this has kind of probably been an issue for some time, is that we don't in America like study international politics as much as we probably should. It isn't taught that much in our schools. And so, and some of our own personal history isn't taught as much in our schools, but I think it it is apparent that some folks don't have a complete awareness of all the complexities of the Middle East and, and what our relationships are with these various countries. And I think it makes it harder for people to learn how to interject themselves in a dialogue right now where obviously international issues are so front and center for this administration. But again, if we are not in war, I don't know for better or for worse, if this issue is going to be the deciding factor 
for probably 70% of voters. It will for some, and they will be concerned about it, but I don't know if it will be a deciding factor for probably about 70% of the Democratic base. We'll see. We'll see. Let me uh, shift gears and play something for you to listen to and respond to. This is Charlemagne the God. Mm-hmm. appearing on ABC News with Jonathan Carl this weekend. Let's hear what he had to say and how he characterized Joe Biden, the president of the United States. That sounds crazy that we're saying that about a president of the United States of America, but he he has no main character energy at all. None. And what is that? Is that age? Is it the way he is? I mean, why, why do you, what, what's the problem? I don't think it has anything to do with, 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 with age. You know, I think it has just everything to do with, with him. Like Donald Trump is what, four years, three years younger than President Biden, but he just comes off a lot more youthful. He comes off, you know, like he has a lot more energy. And Ashley Allison, an influential voice in the African-American community, and I really think in the Democratic Party, uh, Charlemagne the God there says, Joe Biden lacks main character energy. How, how widespread is his view and how influential uh, are his words going to be in describing Joe Biden? Charlemagne has a massive following um, that people listen to him for cultural commentary. I don't know if um, I remember having a conversation with him on the 2020 campaign before he decided to endorse the president and vice president. I don't know how much impact his endorsement has one way or the other, because I, I like have a question mark on endorsements writ large uh, in terms of like the impact it has on voters. Um I will just personally say I do not need my president to be the main character of any show. I want the American people to be the main character. And I feel like we did have a president who was a main character, and that was Donald Trump. And that was a disaster um, because when you have a main character personality in the, the White House, they are not moving for the good of the country. They are moving for themselves. Um, main characters are the focus of everything. And that's actually not what the president's job is. The president's job is to focus on the lives of Americans and keeping us safe and keeping us able to have a thriving economy. And so I want the main character to be the stories of Americans. And then I want the president and the cabinet and the, um, the house and the Senate. This is the problem with DC right now. All these jokers feel like they're the main characters. They're not, (laughs) they work for us. <laughs> I think I, I think that, that that might be the truest thing you said today. Everybody up there is, uh, you know, what team are you on? I'm on my team. Yeah, they, <laughs> and there's I'm, no other members. Work, <laughs> it's just me. Work for us. Like we pay their bill. We pay their pay. Like without us, they don't have a job. They don't have any authority. So they need to realize that we, the voters, are the main characters. They are our supporting cast, and so they need to ensure that they are doing the work to support us so we can thrive. So that's how I feel about, you know, the main character. Look, people like Charlemagne are not going anywhere. Every he is a voter, so he is allowed to say whatever he wants. The the thing about it that has to happen is like if you do not agree with what Charlemagne is saying, then speak up and say why you are supporting Joe Biden. I think right now there are there are too many people who do support Joe Biden who don't speak up in support of him or the vice president. And so we're going to have to turn that page very soon. I brought him up because um, I thought that that clip was interesting, but the advice he had for the Biden campaign was simply this downshift Biden and put Kamala Harris front and center in this campaign. You agree with that advice? 
don't know if you downshift President Biden. There's enough space for both of them to have a very big profile. I do think the vice president has found her sweet spot. It is out. I have been in some of these meetings with her. It is out talking to people, not in Washington, D.C. It is talking to women. It is talking to young voters. It is talking to people across the community, telling them how she will fight for them, um, being in dialogue with them. So I, I am appreciating this role, this lane that the vice president is playing right now. I want to see more of it. Um, but look, Joe Biden is still running for president, so we can't just like ignore him. He still needs to be able to get, talk to the voters as well. But I, I would like to see more of Kamala, but I also would like to see um, more of cabinet secretaries. There's an acting secretary of labor, Julie Sue, that I heard her story about how she protected um, garment workers in the beginning of her career, Secretary Fudge, who's working on homeless. There's like a lot of work that this administration is doing. We need to hear from those folks what they are doing. Um, and again, I think the, a great opportunity to really surge on these folks is after the State of the Union. What you're hearing on Flower Country today is that of Ashley Allison, Democratic political strategist and a fellow contributor and colleague of mine on CNN. When we come back, the famous lightning round. You're on Flower Country with Scott Jennings. And thanks for listening to Flyover Country. I'm Scott Jennings with a fellow flyover country person, Ashley Allison, a native of Ohio, lives in Washington now. We're colleagues on CNN, but I really respect Ashley's viewpoint because she comes from the middle of the country, too, and uh, and has so much tremendous political experience. And I think you should always listen carefully to what she has to say about uh, her party and uh, the state of American political affairs. Before we do the famous lightning round, Ashley, I did want to talk about our jobs on CNN a little bit. Um, I really uh, uh, liked you from the moment I first met you because when you do these panels, you don't filibuster. You don't make speeches. You just get right to the point, and it's often the sharpest one on the panel. So I just wanted to ask you, have you enjoyed being a political contributor? What about the job has been the most rewarding for you? Oh, I love it. I feel like it's an honor and a privilege. You know, I my, my undergraduate is in journalism, and so I started down that path and took a pivot to go into politics, but it's really great now to be – um, to kind of live out one of my dreams. I never take it for granted, um, even if I only get 90 seconds on air. I know there are people who are counting on me to speak my truth and ultimately speak their truth. So I love it. Um, uh, I, I'm really looking for it. This is my first presidential on television, so it should be a fun year. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it as well. I feel like in 2020, uh, you were on the campaign, but I was with CNN. Mm -hmm. But but our, our commentary side of it was really short-circuited because – uh, and a lot of the campaign was short circuited because of of the of the pandemic. So this year, I think we're going to get a more normal campaign, both for the operatives and for the people like us who are out there uh, commenting on it. All right, Ashley Allison, this is famous, famous mm -hmm. lightning round. Now these are short answer or yes or no questions only. Don't filibuster me. Don't wear me out on any of these. Don't caveat me. Don't nuance me. I need clear, short, crisp concise answers here's a famous don't, lightning round don't number, get me in trouble sky <laughs> i'm not gonna get you in trouble all right we'll start with an easy one number one will the government shut down in march yes or no no number two will the winner of the electoral college 
in this year's presidential election also win the national popular vote? Yes. Number three, will your home state of Ohio elect another Republican senator this November? And Sherrod Brown will hold it, which means the Dems can win. Number four, what's the last movie you saw and did you like it? Ooh, um, I have ADHD, so I don't watch a lot of movies. Let me think. <laughs> okay, it could be, uh, let me expand it. It could be, it could be something on like Netflix or something. What's the last good thing okay. you saw? Listen, I am a big supporter. It's on Peacock, this show called Traitors. It's okay. fascinating. I, I really like it. It's in the middle of the season, but it's it's amazing. All right. You are famous for exotic, interesting travel. What's the best <laughs> trip you took in the last three years? Where'd you go and what'd you do? Um... Well, COVID hit some of that time. So I think I went I went back to Costa Rica, this place called Nosara, which is a blue zone where people are like famous for living over 100. Half the population is over 100. Really? But be- yeah. There's like six in the world in Nosara. I've been there twice, actually. And I was there with friends and we just, we did yoga. And we, it actually happened this time last year because um, hmm. they're there now again. Yoga, the beach, the water, the food, it's amazing. What book is on your nightstand right now? The Bible. The Bible. Okay. Uh, you live in Washington, D.C., and I don't know if you saw this or not, but some new rules have just passed, and you're allowed to eat out at a restaurant one more time, and then it's over. What restaurant are you choosing? You mean it closes? <laughs> no, I'm saying I'm, it's a it's a hypothetical. You can only oh. chew. You can only eat dinner out one more time. You got to oh. pick a restaurant. Which one are you choosing in Washington, D.C.? Um, it's the famous lightning round. I'm just saying. Okay, okay. I think I would go to Stan's. Have you ever been to Stan's? Nah, I don't think so. Stan's is like a black quintessential place in Washington, D.C. It's right, it's on um, Vermont. It's downstairs. It's very tiny. Um, I'm not drinking right now because I'm lit, but uh, they their pores are very, very strong, and they have the best chicken wings in the world. All right, Stan's in Washington. Uh, next question. Who is your favorite Republican elected official currently serving in office? Jeez, oh man. Pass. Pass? There's not a single Republican that you like? All right, let me ask you a question. Who's your favorite Republican right now, period, in politics? Uh, Scott Jennings. Uh, yeah, I knew, I knew, I knew. I love I'm going to play that back a lot. I'm going to send that to our bosses, actually, just so they know that. Don't tell the other commentators. Don't tell Alan Stewart, David Irvin, Elizabeth Griffin. All right, all right, all right. Here we go. Flash forward. The year is 2028. Who are the Democratic and Republican nominees for president? Okay, Democratic nominees: Kamala Harris, Raphael Warnock, Gretchen Whitmer, Wes Moore. No, 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 Gavin no, 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 no. Who is the what? Democratic nominee for president in 2028? You try. You really. <laughs> um. Ooh. Mm. I know it's hard. Can I do a ticket? And not yeah, say who's on top. Yeah, you can do a top? ticket. Yes, okay. I'll, 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 okay. I'll allow it. Ticket. I think 
that there is a great possibility that Gretchen Whitmer is on the ticket. Yep. A very, a very strong possibility. Um, there's a possibility Kamala Harris is on that ticket. And I'm going to say one more because I am, because I just can't. I think Wes Moore is up and coming, who was the governor of Maryland. Um, I saw something about him last night. I was like, wow. Yeah. He's got it. Yeah. I've seen him in person. He, he's a pretty impressive guy. We have a, yeah. a, a person who appears on the show uh, pretty regularly named uh, Joe Arnold, who uh, he's a big, uh, he's been uh, pontificating about Raphael Warnock being on the national yeah. ticket at some point. I heard you mention his name. He, he Yes, he definitely um, is. I mean, I could go on my list. I feel, the, that's the other thing I have to say. I know it's a lightning round, but I feel like the Democrats have a strong bench as well. And so I think that there will be a lot of folks and it will really be like who can get the donors and the infrastructure up and running to win. All right, flash forward. The year is, I don't know, some year in the future. Is Ashley Allison's name ever on a ballot? No, uh, no. I mean, I was like, do you have to write your name to vote? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Final question. I say never, but I, I, the Lord has not told me that it's my ministry on this earth. No. <laughs> I understand. All right, final question. You famously own a bulldog. What is one piece of advice for bulldog owners? What should we know? Because, you know, I got a bulldog basically inspired by you. I got a bulldog over Christmas. What's one piece of advice for bulldog owners that we should all know for when our bulldogs grow up and get bigger than they are when they're puppies? Um, They have a lot of energy. So you have to give them space to run. And people think bulldogs are lazy. They are They are lazy. They only want to do it on their time schedule. But when this girl starts running, you know, she's 60 pounds like a bowling ball. She could take your knee out. So you got to give them space to like run, jump, play, and then they sleep. Yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've been surprised at the uh, level of... Uh... Uh, running around Elvis the bulldog does in the Jennings household he is he is quite energetic you know we got two puppies we got Elvis and I we, know. Got, we got Fiona the pug Fiona. and they've been they they do a lot together they gnaw on each other a lot it's quite a quite a <laughs> thing okay Ashley Allison you've been a great guest you have been uh very very candid in answering all of our questions today please tell the listeners of flyover country where can we find Ashley Allison on all the social media where can we keep up with you on my main platform is Instagram, and I'm at Ashley underscore R underscore Allison. Um, I'm on Twitter, but I don't really post. So Instagram, I do a lot of cultural commentary on my page as well. All right. Ashley Allison, find her on Instagram. Find her on CNN, sometimes sitting next to me. Hopefully we'll be on together soon. Ashley, you're one of my favorite political commentators. You're one of my favorite Democrats, and I'm so grateful that you came by the show today. Thanks for talking with us. Thanks for having me. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.